everybody. Welcome back. Another episode of the Canna Book Club. This week, we have the effects of short-term environmental stresses on the onset of cannabinoid production in young, immature flowers of industrial hemp. We have a guest. Really excited about that. As everybody knows, we have a few other people here in the Canna Book Club. And our guest is right there. Chris Pauly, he was on uh, this paper as reviewer, editor. Really excited to have that. We haven't had this opportunity in a little while. So thank you so much for uh, the love on all the episodes going through. Holy smokes, people listen to this episode fast. We're so important that people want to listen to us in the first 12 hours so far 30 times. So I think that's not too bad. You know, two plays an hour. That's about double than what we did before we started doing our video thing so maybe this video algorithm is working out for us hey everybody anyways as we know casey alberon host of the canada book club without further ado go ahead brother what's up canada book club family all right so we're going to talk a little bit about environmental stresses today uh today's paper comes out of the journal of cannabis research uh, and it was actually published this year in January. Uh, and it was written by Park, Polly, Gostin, Staples, Seafried, Kinney, and Vandenhuevel out of the Colorado State University, Pueblo. I'm gonna hit the abstract and my fellow co-hosts will help me out with the rest of the paper and then we'll come together for a discussion, uh, including um, our guest, Christopher S. Polly. All right, so... Cannabis sativa produces at least 120 cannabinoids, although genetic variation is the main factor in cannabinoid production. The effects of short-term environmental stresses in the early flowering stage remains largely unknown. To investigate the effects of short-term environmental stresses on the onset of cannabinoid production in young immature flowers, a hemp variety, Green Thunder, was treated with mechanical damage, insect herbivory, extreme heat, or drought stress for five to seven days during the first two weeks of flowering. Three hemp tissues, including flowers, leaves, and stems, were collected from the hemp grown under these stress conditions at multiple time points during the first two weeks after transition to the short photo period and analyzed using HPLC to quantify phytocannabinoids, including CBGA, CBG, CBDA, CBD, THCA, THC, and CBN. The five days of mechanical wounding did not affect the production of any of the cannabinoids during the initial stage of flowering. However, after five days of herbivore treatment, there was a significant difference in concentration between day one and day six of CBGA, CBG, and CBD between the control and the treatment plants. The seven days of heat treatment at 40 to 50 degrees Celsius significantly reduced the production of CBGA during this observed window and CBG. Notably, the largest change was observed after seven days of drought stress when plants showed a 40% greater accumulation of CBG and a significant decrease in CBD and THC amounts. Although this observation is limited in the early flowering stage, the common field stresses are adequate to induce changes in the cannabinoid profiles, particularly drought stress being the most impactful stress for hemp flower initiation with altering with the altering of the cannabinoid production by decreasing CBD and THC accumulation while increasing CBG by 40%. 
simple but interesting study. Um, and we're just going to run through it. So Molly is going to take it away with the introduction. Thank you, Casey. Uh, yeah, so as usual, we're talking about cannabis. <laughs> um, it's a primarily annual dioecious plant that produces secondary metabolites, which are called cannabinoids. Um, there are at least 120 different cannabinoids that are synthesized in the basal disc cells, and they're stored in glandular trichomes. Um, and uh, the different cannabinoid uh, carrying capacity was observed in cannabis, um, depending mostly on the trichomes. Uh, the flowers uh, usually have the highest concentration, um, which also corresponds with that tissue showing the greatest amount of um, cannabinoids as well. The two major ones, as Casey mentioned, are the THCA as well as CBDA um, that are synthesized from a common um uh, acid which is cbga and uh later they can be decarbed into cbd and thc um over the past years cannabis um and especially you know the derivatives from it cannabinoids became a pretty you know talked about topic because of the therapeutic potential and so to meet uh the increased demands and um produce a product that will tailor to that market. Um, there's a lot of selective breeding efforts that have been made to develop better varieties so that they have uh, various cannabinoid profiles uh, with the new dominant cannabinoids because we're mostly um, looking at THC and CBD right now. Uh, the phytocannabinoid content is primarily determined by genetic factors um, and differently expressed depending on variety, tissue type, position of tissue, and the growth stage, um, as well as environmental conditions uh, that are other major factors contributing to the production and accumulation of cannabinoids. Uh, like other crops, the production of cannabinoids, especially THC and CBD, uh, is affected by the environmental stresses, uh, such as light, temperature, water deficit, nutrition, heavy metals, phytohormones, soil bacteria, biotic stresses, including insect and microbial pathogens. In long-day plants, flowering is mostly promoted by red and far red lights, uh, which is delivered during the early and later parts of the photo period. However, the response of CBDA, THCA, and CBCA to light spectrum uh, appears to be cultivar-specific. Um, in addition, temperature is another important factor for canopy um, formation in fiber hemp. Um, so they mentioned another study that showed that the rate of leaf appearance and uh, stem length linearly increased as temperature rises from 10 degrees Celsius to 28. Um, and so due to global warming, um, a lot of agricultural crops, uh, not excluding cannabis, are encountering pretty complex environmental stresses in which extreme heat and drought are the most impactful. Um, so several studies reported that externally applied uh, plant growth regulators have an impact on morphology, flower biomass, cannabinoid content of cannabis. And um, a study showed that the plant architecture was significantly reduced by the treatment of synthetic auxin, uh, cytokine, and a mixture of both when compared to untreated control plants. Um, it's noted that um, BAP reduced height and number of internodes, but the length of auxiliary branches were not affected. Um, this was applied on the hemp variety Canada, uh, which have aided in the uniform compact growth of the plants and enabled higher CBD production in um, indoor conditions specifically. Um, 
The other thing uh, that they mentioned here is that hemp biomass yield and cannabinoid production can be influenced by various agronomical practices um, like plant density, sowing time, cropping system, plant architecture, and uh, geographical location. And uh, similar to abiotic stress, biotic stresses can cause metabolite concentration changes. Um, so hemp plants are susceptible to a variety of insects. There are over 300 uh, pests that have been reported, but only a few of them are known to be like pretty disastrous. So I think these are more in Europe, but uh, the hemp plants, uh, most serious pests here that they have uh, cited is uh, European corn borers, hemp borers. Um, and compared to other field crops, hemp is still relatively pest tolerant because of the pest repellent properties of cannabinoids and terpenoids. So in recent studies, they have demonstrated that cannabinoid enriched extracts show pesticidal activity. So the plant basically is trying to defend themselves from insect herbivore attacks. Um, and although the impacts of insect damage of cannabinoid content is not well documented, the increase in biomass and seed productivity was observed in hemp, uh, resulting from branch uh, proliferation caused by the European corn borer. Um, it's also reported that phytocannabinoid concentration composition uh, was significantly correlated to structure of endorhiza communities. So again, I think that that one is pretty interesting. This is the first time I, I hear of the borers, probably because I don't grow hemp. Um, so the aim of the study was to investigate uh, if commonly reported biotic and abiotic stresses, including mechanical damage, insect damage, excess heat and drought stress, uh, influence cannabinoid production and bioaccumulation of a local uh, Colorado hemp variety during the early flowering stage under semi-controlled environment. Um, better understanding of the environmental effects of cannabinoid production would be a necessary step for successful hemp cultivation. And um, Corey will take away from here with materials and methods. All right. Thanks, Molly. I appreciate that. Uh, materials and methods uh, is, this is probably one of the most boring materials and methods that I've personally read uh, in a way. There, there, It's very, I don't have anything to, to pick a hole in this one. Dr. Anubis, don't worry. I won't, I won't shred like we had to uh, last week. So very simple. I'm not going to go read it word for word, but trust when I say they took clones and they maintained it under reasonable temperatures, 20 to 25 degrees Celsius, we're, rel we're good here, 50 to 70% humidity, top notch. They used rapid rooters, which were, uh, you know, all of us home growers are definitely in, uh, into, and then using a little bit of botanicare, so a little bit of liquid karma to really push and get those roots going. Uh, one of the other things, you know, products in Canada that's going to be comparable is something called VitaThrive. Uh, so same type of thing kind of in that rooting or just a little bit of nutrients to get that going, get a little... Is their official terminology here is root induction solution. So we're rock and roll with that. We uh, had the clones go under a T5 until the roots reached about 15 to 20 centimeters long, uh, roughly as long as about the clones that were uh, taken beforehand uh, in our other paper that we, we studied. Uh, the rooted clones were transplanted into 25 centimeter square pots uh, with ProMix. So again, very standard fare. We can go to Home Depot or Canadian Tire and uh, put ProMix in the little pots and get going with this. Uh, we had a maintained, again, 20 to 25 once they, you know, sprung out of that clone method or clone stage uh, and went into a grow tent. Uh, and again, 25, 50 to 70% humidity with a 16 hour light and an eight hour dark cycle. Uh, and then during your vegetative stage for six weeks, uh, then they went into a flowering stage. So 12-12, uh, same type of thing there. 
if you're under veg, I think more of like 18 sex is type, typically the thing. So I guess that might be our, our only thing uh, that we have here. But yeah, the hemp plants were irrigated with one liter of water uh, twice weekly, um, except for the drought treatment, which was only 200 mils. Which, um, yeah, drought treatments, excited because, you know, we've had Dr. Kaplan here with us before and he's specifically gone into that drought stress as well. So here, uh, the stress experiment was a total of 12 of the hemp clones uh, and they were taken from a two-month-old mother. Uh, so the height of the mother plant was controlled by cutting, you know, apical and keeping it tight. And again, we're looking at six untreated control plants were grown under the semi-controlled grow tent. So 12 hemp clones uh, rolled under from... Uh, six untreated plant, sorry, six untreated control plants, uh, and again, same humidity levels, same temperature, uh, in that weird 16 to 8 uh, time frame as well. And then again, uh, of course, the drought stress is just a little bit uh, different. So for all seven stress tests, they had the seven-week-old hemp clones that were in week two of flowering stage. So for the mechanical wounding experiment, they also did on day one where they did three fully expanded fan leaves at three nodes from the top. So again, I'm just going to go over that one more time because this is kind of the important meat and potatoes of it. So mechanical wounding on day one, three fully expanded fan leaves, at least three nodes from the top were punctured using a one quarter inch round hole punch for 12 holes per leaf. For the main stem wounding, a blade was used to generate five one-inch long vertical incisions on the stock. Okay, don't worry. I'll go back to that for a second, everybody. For the mechanical wounding experiment on day one, they used a one-quarter-inch round hole punch, 12 holes per leaf. That's right. Wanted to go back to that because I'm assuming as I was reading the next one, you were still thinking, did Corey just say that they used an effing hole punch? Yes, kids, I did. They used a hole punch on the leaves here. So I'm surprised they didn't give us like the manufacturer and stuff. Like, <laughs> right. Like, like, swing line, like swing line, single punch, black. <laughs> Love it. For the main stem wounding, uh, a blade was used to generate five one inch long vertical incisions on the stock. Uh, the percentage of tissue loss per leaf and stems was maintained at no more than 20%. So, in a series of wounding introduced in the next two days, the remaining lower parts of the plant were treated. So, same thing, five one-inch long vertical incisions on the stock. Herbivore damage. This was cool. I was waiting to figure out what this was because when I read in the beginning, I was like, herbivore damage? What is going on? So, what is going on? A total of 20 third in-store caterpillar larvae of tobacco hornworm were placed on the leaves of six hemp plants that were covered with a mesh net bag for five days. How rude. How dare you subject this plant to such a mean treatment. You throw all these bugs on them and you just let them have it? Holy smokes. Aren't the hornworms like super territorial too? Wouldn't that be just like a crazy like worm fight? Uh, I did not brush up on my hornworm facts. Uh, All I know is that they will eat everything on the plant. Uh, people lose their tomatoes to that thing regularly. Uh, they were small hornworm larvae, though. That's the key thing. These weren't full size. Oh, okay. It's not a caterpillar war here. Okay. Damn it. I was hoping for the caterpillar war. 
Would have been fun. All right, heat treatment. Uh, excess heat was generated by a heater that maintained the grow tent at 45 to 50 degrees Celsius for seven days. That will definitely get rid of PM. To prevent the tent from overheating, an additional exhaust fan was installed for better ventilation. For the drought experiment, the water deficiency condition was simulated by irrigating twice a week with 200 mils. So well under the one liter as we spoke about before. Uh, so it's approximately 20% relative water content in the soil. That is a rough dryback. That's, that's essentially what I'm doing with a rock wool cube. When I go in in the morning, I'm like, okay, 1820, that's good. Let's get that back up going. That's, that's rough, folks, especially when we're doing like, you know, it's generative going at that part. There's flowering at that point. So that's just, yeah, that's, a, that's an incredible push to say the least. <laughs> Uh, once each treatment was completed, the flower, leaf, and stem tissues were collected separately. Six hemp plants initially subjected to each stress test. Uh, the three most healthy uh, and representative plants were chosen for the cannabinoid analysis. And then all flowers, lems, lems, nope, leaves, and stems were separated, uh, collect, separately collected. And the sample tissues were immediately stored on ice and kept and blah, 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 HPLC. We've been down this road before on, on methods and methods. Uh, statistical analysis. I got in trouble last week from Dr. Anibis. I'm kidding. But she wanted to make sure that we went over the statistical analysis part about how they did the stats. But y'all can go and read that because I'm not going to go over that. There's some P things. There's some number things over there. If you really want to understand how they went through that analysis, by all means, everybody, the world is your oyster. We link this paper in the description on all of the places that we release it. So I invite you uh, at this time to nerd out on statistical analysis. This is my uh, exit to stage left where we're going to go into results and discussion, everybody. Thank you, Corey. Yeah, we got another uh, combo results and discussion section, which is kind of fun, but kind of interesting. Makes it a little confusing for Dr. Anna and I, since I usually take the results, she takes the discussion. So uh, we just kind of have to figure it out on our own, but we're good because I will usually do the results results, but she will help with translating what those results mean into more digestible terms. But let's start with the early floral cannabinoid production. Uh, they mentioned that the flowers did have the highest concentration of cannabinoids between all the tissues, so that definitely makes sense. Um, goes without saying. Uh, and THC and CBD concentrations did increase over time, as expected. The minor cannabinoids like CBG, CBN, they did not change much during the first two weeks of flowering. Um, and in the leaves, the concentrations also didn't change much during the early flowering stage. Um, all pretty expected. So these hemp plants are, are just, as, uh, just as normal as all cannabis plants. Um, now looking at our hole punching and um, cutting mechanical wounding uh, and cannabinoid production. Uh, so with this type of short-term mechanical wounding, there were no changes in cannabinoid concentrations to any of the tissues um, compared to the control. Uh, figure one, 
represents the difference between the cannabinoid concentrations on day one and day six of flower. Um, Chris, I was actually wondering if you could explain this type of graph, these graphs or figures that you guys went with. Um, it does make sense, but I, I feel like I can't explain it as good as somebody who was involved with the paper was. Definitely. So like for I was going to say, I can try and take it away from here. So um, basically the way we kind of look at it is they gave both micro, uh, yeah, micrograms per gram and then a percent weight. So most people report cannabinoids in a percent weight there, which is on our um, right y-axis there. And then our left y-axis is the uh, micrograms per gram. And notice there's a little jump in there. So when you see those really small bars, they're a lot different than the big bars. Um, and basically we used a star system to try and say what the statistical significance was between the different, um, tissues and kind of like we said, it's, it's an obvious thing, but not a lot of people have reported, here's what the actual tissues do over time, um, in a very quanti quantified fashion to where you can say, okay, I'm very accurate with my quantification of these cannabinoids and I can detect really low levels of these things. And so what we see here is we look at each of these different cannabinoids, and these are kind of just your main top five or seven or so um, that most people, you'd always see these on any certificate of analysis or pretty much any dispensary you walk into. These are the five or seven they measure. Um, and so what we see here is that flower are, of course, the highest in every cannabinoid. Everyone that you can measure out of this, it's, that's what we're seeing here. Um, the little bars on top tell you kind of the uh, air bars of kind of where the range was out of all the samples we took. So we um, tried to say basically does that air bar overlap with a leaf? Can you tell the difference between a flower and a leaf from an HPLC test? The answer is yes for every single one of these and especially between leaf and stem as well. You notice the stem bar really doesn't exist in a lot of these. Um, but basically what we're seeing here is that Flowers are most potent in all of them. The CBDA is kind of second highest, I would say, along with THCA, the two most common cannabinoids we know about. Um, those would be second highest in all of the tissues across the board. They're in stems, they're in leaves. So pretty much every part of this plant produces these compounds, which is interesting because we really only smoke the flowers. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say that main thing here is just showing that flowers are more potent than leaves. Leaves are more potent than stems and just kind of quantifying how much is in each. So if you're wondering, can I extract my stems and get edibles? The answer is yes. It's just not very much in there. Cool. And Corey, if you could bring up the regular figure one. Yeah, I was having a problem bringing that one up for some reason it only wanted to give me supplementary um, it's at the bottom of that section in the results i think i got it yeah also christopher i just wanted to say by doing this study you've crushed every single person who ever smoked in the 70s heart by doing this do you know how <laughs> many leaves that they smoked and tried to convince us that you know you get really ripped off of it you just you know there's there's some dads and moms uh, that are not impressed about this currently right now 
believes you have cannabinoids. There's data to prove it, though, here. That's the good news. <laughs> I know, and that's the thing, is that they weren't completely crazy, so... <laughs> And mind you, this is just hemp. So when you think about like a THC dominant variety, the CBD is kind of non-existent there. So when you talk about total cannabinoids, that breakdown kind of shifts more towards the THC dominant. So if you're seeing maybe a percent or 2% total cannabinoids in a leaf, that 2% would be THC in a, a really nice THC variety. Was it the paper last week that we were reading that said, it was recently, that said if the young leaves have... CBD in them, then there's CBD variety. If mm-hmm. God, what was it? Uh, what was it? Oh, it say- had, mm, I can't remember what it was. Do you guys remember what it was? Like you can tell a CBD variety from a THC variety by the cannabinoids that are present in the young leaves. And you I, I, I good. Oh, I would say I would take that a step farther and even say you can somewhat predict the ratio of CBD to THC when you do that early leaf testing. That's something. Um, I work with Front Range Biosciences, a hemp company that we we do regularly. It's that's how you can screen plants and say, okay, does this one have the highest CBD production potential? Is you screen the leaf, and the leaf will tell you months before you could start to flower this plant whether or not what what is the ratio look like, um, and it's de- genetically determined, so it's probably going to stay consistent between the leaf and the flower. Which is not so important for the THC farmers, but it is super important for the hemp farmers. Exactly. And I, I mean, even on the THC side, as you get into THCV and some of these other cannabinoids, or you want a little bit of CBD in your THC variety, leaf screening's the way to go. Um, so how about for figure the real figure one? I mean, the supplementary figure one was important to you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, these types of figures because I see that's kind of the the what's going on for each of these sections but so it's saying that a positive I'm just trying to compare like the untreated to the treated definitely so all of figure one here is just on mechanical wounding which is that 12 hole punches per fully expanded leaf um which I mean as somebody who grew cannabis myself for a long time I kind of know that you can punch a hole in a leaf. You can take off half of a leaf and you're probably not going to notice the best weed coming out of it or something random like that. So it's like, well, it's kind of obvious here. Um, but as you see, there's no star system here that the star system that designates a statistically significant result doesn't exist here. It's because none of these are statistically significant. And that when you look at them, it's like, okay, there's some differences there. Like doing this to a leaf definitely changes the chemistry slightly but does it do it in a statistically significant fashion that we can say, oh, yeah, this has changed this? No. And so what you see here is just all the different cannabinoids, mainly CBG, um, CBD, THC, and the acid forms of them. That's where your six panels comes from. And so each uh, graph itself is their own cannabinoid. And similarly, before micrograms per gram on one side, uh, percent weight on the other, and then you have your three tissue types in the middle. Um, and when you look at them, when you say, okay, this leaf is 0.05% THC, how accurate is that? That's It's something that you have this variation and it's such a small number. Well, that bar looks big on, say, panel F there where you look at it in the leaf. It almost shows the leaf being as potent as the mechanically wounded flower. 
but that's only at a half of a tenth of a percent. Like that is such a small amount of this cannabinoid that we're measuring. Um, it's just non-statistically significant. So what we found is punching a bunch of holes in your leaves isn't going to get you higher cannabinoids, isn't really going to change your cannabinoid profile overall too much at all. So I was wondering when I was looking at this, um, this figure in particular, since there is no statistical significance, you could argue, though, that there is a case to be made for biological significance, right? Because you can see there are differences. And you even, you know, and you even said, like, you can clearly see there are differences, but it's not enough to, like, have a song and dance over because it's not statistically significant. But, you know, some of the biological sciences are kind of getting away from the statistical significance because biological significance is not always the same. And it may not be a huge difference, but it is biologically significant. So, you know, take that into consideration too here, right? I'd say we know that injuring the plant in any way, it's it's causing a stress response biologically, and it's got genetic uh, gene changes that are going to happen to make that plant respond to this. It has to heal. It has to produce resins to try and stop the escape of water. It's got all these features that we know happen in the plant. Um, but when you look at this, and I, I wish the air bars kind of went on both sides because that would show it a little bit better. Um, but the air bars just overlap. So maybe one of our samples was, uh, if we look at panel A here, we see one of them was 400 and one of them was minus 400. One of them lost a bunch of uh, CBGA, one of them gained it. But also there could have been one in the untreated group that gained some and one in the treated group that lost some. And so that's where it, it kind of overlaps and you're just like, okay, well, if my treated group lost some and the untreated group gained some, but then they happened, but vice versa. It really means nothing. It's like, well, it's kind of just random at this point. We measured some hemp plants and they did something different. Each of them did. Well, that's kind of, yeah. I mean, then I guess it's, I don't know how to put this nicely. Like it's, it's <laughs> like this, <laughs> this figure is kind of like misleading then. Right. They should have put it on both sides so that we could see like the difference. Although, is it is that the total loss and total gained, or the the idea is as far as that air bar extends above the top of that graph, it'll extend below it too. Um, so, if you were to kind of measure that line and little stick at the top, and just mm -hmm. put that same size on the other side of so the flip the, the little T, flip the little T to the bottom or your, or the top or whatever. Um, one to make these graphs. Well, and the other one I had, you know, like all through this paper, like these are immature flowers and leaves and stems. So, um, I, you know, I wonder how, what the difference would be if it was an immature plant that, you know, was a little bit more um, robust and able to, you know, like figure out life better. A huge caveat I just want to throw out up front here is that these were only measured during the first two weeks of flower, which if anybody's watched cannabis flower, the first two weeks are not flowering there. You might get a couple hairs stick out. They may have a ball of hairs if they're a fast flower. Um, but this is, it's such an immature stage of flowering that you're measuring micrograms per gram. Whereas most COAs that you'd see in a dispensary are milligrams per gram. It's on a three order of magnitude more. Um, 
And so it's it's kind of a limitation of this study, but it is also something that we did see changes in some of these treatments to suggest that, okay, if you're going to try and do this over eight weeks, do you want to do an eight-week treatment on five treatments that you don't know if are going to do anything? This might help guide that uh, future research to say, okay, if I'm going to study all of flowering now, I'm going to look for these conditions. Um, but yeah, it, it is a huge limitation of the study to say we're only studying this first two weeks, barely any flower happening on it. Do you have any insight as to why they did it that way and didn't like maybe harvest some of the early flowers and test those and then run out the experiment a little longer to get some of the more mature flowers? Or, I mean, there's, a, there's always a reason. So from my understanding, it was that we tried a lot of different uh, conditions at once. And so we were just trying to see how many stresses can we do at once um, and see which stress affects it most to then do that follow-up study. Um, so we were trying to get a, a broader swath of things done rather than say, okay, we, we know drought is the thing everybody reports as the way you can get higher cannabinoids. So let's just study drought. Um, so yeah, it's, it's those trade-offs, but I, I do like the fact that they did try a lot of treatments and that, that was something that it gives a, a lot of information in one paper. So, yeah, we talk a lot about, um, you know, these, I call them springboard studies, where it's like you do a bunch of stuff so that then you can start to get, more, you know, like an idea of where to get these really, you know, robust studies going and where should we focus our energies? Well, because when we know nothing, like where do you start, you know? That's the huge thing is not many people have taken a stab at um, kind of what, how do you do these treatments? So, like, I mean, to me, I wouldn't think, 12 hole punches is or a, a inch incision is really representative of a machine coming over the top and taking all your tops off or something like that. Um, but it is something to say, okay, I know I injured this plant. I know the plant's got an injury response happening. So let me see if there's anything happening there. Um, but yeah, it, it's exactly like that. It's a springboard study that tried to set the stage for, okay, if other people want to go through and do this, um, what what's happening and there's always the limitations of labor and growing these things at a university having undergraduates come in and do these experiments do the treatments all that fun stuff so that that's definitely a limitation as well it gives good um a good start for somebody who wants to write a grant you know like these people found this we want to expand on this research and here's why like then you can start getting funding which we all know is pretty scarce in the cannabis world I'd say a really cool thing about the ICR or the Institute of Cannabis Research, which is the group who did this down at CSU Pueblo, um, they're one of the recipients of the marijuana tax dollars. So out of the marijuana tax law that happened, there's a certain percentage of it that has to be allocated to research. And CU Boulder and CSU Fort Collins were like, no, we're a tier one university. We don't want that money. That money is drug money and our, we could lose our federal funding because of it. So we'll give it down to CSU Pueblo. They can take that money and see how it works out for them for a couple of years. And, we'll and that's nothing against Pueblo. Pueblo's <laughs> a lovely place. I would say they, they're doing great research. It's a huge agricultural university. And so it seems appropriate. But now I hear there is a little bit of talk of some of the bigger universities want that funding now because they're so there's cannabis studies at CU Boulder. There's cannabis at CSU Fort Collins. Uh, yeah. It, growing but and is that, and their conference has been amazing the last few years so 
they've done a really good job of at least like moving, like, I mean, they started the ball rolling and, and now everybody wants to jump on their coattails. I don't think that's very cool, but ah, such is academia. So it always takes the first one to stick their neck out there and give it a shot. Now everyone's jealous. Well, I guess let's jump back into these multiple, uh, environmental stresses. So like I just said, um, and then we'll come back. Um, so hold all thoughts. So mechanical wounds, no significant changes. Um, now herbivore stress, uh, figure two is your herbivore stress, um, display. We've got, um, Comparisons of five days of cannabinoid production between um, control um, and the insect-damaged hemp plants. Again, um, oh, well, this time we actually got a little change in CBGA. Um, The herbivore wounding did reduce CBGA um, significantly. Uh, You can see, yeah, the flowers in, in part A they went pretty pretty far down in every every cannabinoid, but mostly significantly in CBGA and CBG. So, so one quick thing that I didn't explain in figure one that I think is really important about these figures because it kind of blew my mind at first is when you see that's like negative 50 micrograms per gram, it doesn't have negative cannabinoids. So this is a measurement on day one and a measurement on day six. And so you have these five days of treatment and it's what happened between those days. And most people that grow cannabis are like, yeah, the first five days of flower, the leaves become more potent. Everything does. It starts getting more trichomes. It starts getting more cannabinoids. Um, We saw a decrease in cannabinoids during those first five days with some of these treatments, which is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And also kind of to speak on this a little bit as well as when an insect comes and attacks a cannabis plant, what does it do to respond to that? It really tries to make these secondary metabolites to help it survive. And so what secondary metabolites does it have? CBG is one of them, um, but THC and CBDA and all these other cannabinoids, flavonoids, terpenoids, these things are much better at fighting off pests than CBG is. And so you might have redirected cannabinoid production into terpene production or flavonoid production that might have more of an anti-insecticidal property. Um, We didn't measure those here, but it is a thought to keep in mind for a future project that if you want to look into some of these other compounds and what, why did you lose all of your CBGA when you treated it this way? It's probably going into one of these shared pathways that uh, is another secondary metabolite. Yeah. And, um, we're definitely, we definitely, uh, Dr. Anna's going to, me- I'm sure, mention what these little buggers do to avoid detection. Little, little buttheads. Are you going to, are you <laughs> alluding to the, the regurgitant they throw up on the wound so that the plant is, the <laughs> defenses are inhibited? Um, so they, yeah, so the good regurgitators. Yeah, they just kind of throw up on it. There you go. So now you can't produce the stuff that you need to produce to get rid of me. So in the paper, it says the regurgitant is used to suppress plant defense mechanisms leading to the changes in metabolic profiles that involve release of toxic chemicals such as alkaloids, anthocyanins, phenols, quinones, as well as volatile terpenoids that repel 
natural enemy insects. So um, that could be the reason. But I, like you were saying, Chris, I would really have loved to have seen the terpene profile. Like, did the was mm. was the plant ramping that up, or or you know, if that decreased as well? Like, maybe these insects are really, um, really good at at um, cutting off the plant's defenses just by throwing up. <laughs> Who uh, knows? That that's a really interesting point. You bring that up. The regurgitin is something I've looked into quite a bit with the insect studies and other plants, and they do have this plant response that is triggered by that regurgitant, or it's basically like their saliva. As they go and eat the leaf, they leave a little saliva behind, and that saliva or just chewing uh, whatever comes out of their mouth signals the plant and then says, okay, this plant should make this, and it's usually terpenes that come out of that. And it's like guayal is one that is a regurgitant um, instigated, I guess you would call it, or uh, a response, like yeah, a-, a guile response to that regurgitant and say, I'll produce a ton of guile and guile is something that'll kill aphids at like 300 ppm. So it really doesn't need much guile to do this. And it can be a small amount. You might not smell it. You might not notice it. But the plant can produce a toxic compound to some of these uh, insects, but also then the insect can try and fight that back. The evolution of things that there's always that balance in nature of the insects are trying as hard as the plant is to to survive. That's super cool. And I um, in this portion as well, since we're just in here, um, I was wondering if the reduction um, in CBG and CBGA and CBD are significant. Um, could that be that it's cutting off like production of of cannabinoids and all the CBG is being is still being um, uh, cha- um, changed converted. into converted. Thank you, converted into THCA and CBDA. So you're not seeing as much CBG because it that's been stopped. But the uh, but it what was there is being converted. So you end up with less CBG. But do, do you think that maybe that's what's going on there? Definitely. And so by trade, I'm a, I'm a geneticist. I do mostly genomics kind of work. And so I study the cannabinoid synthesis a lot um, and understanding how these enzymes work and what they do. These treatments are something that will induce in- expression of cannabinoid synthesis or uh, reduce cannabinoid synthase expression. And so you have this giant pool of CBG produced, but mm-hmm. then got to have these enzymes there to convert them. Right. You might express the enzyme, and then if you have too little water, it doesn't like the cellular condition, and it can't fold right, and so it can't work on that CBG. Maybe it folds better, and now it's producing way more THC for every molecule of CBG there is. Um, and so there's this that dynamic there of these enzymes that we know exist. We know exactly how they work. We can clone them into other organisms. We can show that this process works in a million different ways depending on pH, temperature, um, all of these different things, but exactly your, your pool of CBG is just the precursor. And so it really depends on you're building this up and then are you eating it away right away or not? Um, mm-hmm. Or you may stop building it up too. You can break the pathway upstream of there in the biosynthetic pathway as well. I was wondering that too about producing the other CBD and THC, but it also looks like those were a lot lower than 
the controls when treated. But maybe it's just used up. Who knows? They're just pumping it out, trying to kill those little buggers. I was going to say, and anybody who wants to grow CBG and doesn't have a CBG cultivar, um, early harvesting definitely gets you there. I mean, these, these plants produce CBG before they can produce THC. So you catch them early enough, like in the first two weeks of flower, that may be all they had time to do. They might not have expressed the enzymes to make these other cannabinoids. And so it can kind of explain some of those lower numbers you see on the other cannabinoids, um, especially CBN. That's a breakdown product of CBD or THC, uh, mostly THC, I believe, but yeah. Yeah. And I don't know why they, uh, that was something that I noticed. They said they're t- going to test CBN and it just totally fell off the radar for the rest of the paper. I was like, these are immature flowers. Why would you go? Why, why, why bother? But, um, Oh, there's something else I was going to say. Oh, CBG. But if you want to grow for CBG and you want to buy early harvest, you're not going to get the biomass. You're not going to get, you're not going to get the yield that you want because you're harvesting just a little bit. So, I mean, if you want CBG, you really got to go for the CBG genetics and not rely on an early harvest because that's not going to work very well. Exactly. And avoid, avoid herbivores. I'd say, and it's, it's similar for CBC too. That's another cannabinoid I wish we measured in this paper, um, but just limitations, things like that really, uh, it's not as good as it could be, but I think it's, it's a good stab in the dark and we, we put a, put a dart on the board there. Um, but CBC is another one that you'll see differential production at different times of flower because of the CBCA synthase. It's a enzyme that will turn CBG into CBC. Um, and so that's another one that it would be interesting to see how that's affected by these things. Cool. So let's talk about excess heat now. Um, figure three, that shows the quantitative comparisons of cannabinoid production between the control and the heat treated hemp plants over this seven day period. So within three days, the hemp plants were completely wilted under excess heat, regardless of the water supply of uh, a liter per day. Uh, and they noted that um, plants um, were also, this was also a water stress kind of situation in addition to the heat stress because increased transpiration caused the increased, temp- co- was caused by increased temperature. So a little hotter, a lot less water. Um, and after seven days of excessive heat treatment, the concentration of CBG and CBGA decreased again. Um, but all other cannabinoids were unchanged. And then just going to jump through. I mean, we, we might as well talk about it since we're here, you know. Okay. The thing that this, this was the most interesting part of the paper, I thought. Because as soon as I read this, I was like, oh, the enzymes are broken. Like the whole, you know, like everything's because heat is going to denature proteins. They can't do their job. You can't make the cannabinoids from the precursors. So CBG is not going to be produced, CBD, THC, and they're all going to just tank, right? It's what happens to us when we get a temperature. Like our, our proteins like denature and you get all messed up. So that's what I was thinking was going on. And I thought that was so super cool. And Chris, I would love it if you also could weigh in here definitely so yeah the 
the heat stress is one that I always find interesting because in molecular biology, I always learned about heat shock proteins that like your body has, plants have, animals have, um, and they're chaperone proteins, they're called. So they're this enzyme that comes out to help other enzymes fold and work in these heat shock or heat stressed environments. Um, and so what we see here is that CBG went down in addition to all the other cannabinoids. So we can say for sure, probably the cannabinoid synthases don't work very well at 45 to 50 degrees C. Um, but on top of that, you can also take a step back up that pathway and say, okay, now CBG is decreasing and it's not going to these other cannabinoids where's it going or what's it doing? It's probably building up the adrenal diphosphate, um, oleic acid. It's probably that parental transferase step that's broken as well, um, or maybe even a step above that as well. And so you can really look at this as, like Anna said, it's, it's, a, it's a stress to the plant that it can't handle. And so it starts messing up all of its proteins and proteins are the way life works. Um, and so without proteins, you're not going to do much. And we kind of see that here over the first five days of flower that, yeah, if you're growing in a really hot environment, at least green thunder does not work in it. Um, and there's probably some uh, plants out there, maybe an equatorial plant that grew up on the equator at very high temperatures and it grows in a hundred degrees Fahrenheit all summer. Um, those plants probably are more resistant to this, but a nice Colorado variety that sees early, uh, early frost, late frost, um, a wide range of temperatures. It's it's not looking for these 45 to 50 degrees C temperatures uh, indoors at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, we can move on to drug now. I think that was, the, that was the only thing I wanted to say is that that was super cool. It made my mind go bloop, bloop, the power of heat compels you. Um, cannabinoid productions in response to drought. This is one we've kind of talked about in the past. Um, really cool. So figure four table and table one show the cannabinoid productions in response to the week-long drought stress in these hemp tissues. And notably, the drought treatment changed the biosynthesis of CBG, CBD, and THC. And unlike the other stresses investigated, drought significantly increased CBG production by 40%. Um, and then CBD and THC were reduced by 70 to 80%. Whoa. I feel like we read a paper before that said that THC increased. So this is different. I think wherever there's one paper that says something, there's an equal and opposite paper that says the other thing. The other paper was drug type cultivars as well. It was not hemp. That's so that true. Also that be... is true. Yeah. Well, I was going to say it, it's the whole science of disproving, um, but this is only the first two weeks though too. So we, we cannot right. forget the fact that these are very, very immature flowers. And I've read some other papers and heard anecdotal stories about drought stress towards the end of flower as a good thing to increase these cannabinoids. Um, but really the most interesting thing about this figure to me is if you noticed all of our statistically significant changes are on the non-acid forms, which aren't mm. really produced very much by the plant. They're decarboxylated in the plant by light, heat, chemicals, all kinds of different ways you can decarboxylate a cannabinoid. 
but you're seeing kind of the plants just not happy is kind of the way I look at it. And it can't hold these cannabinoids in the form that it made them. And so it's decarboxylating them at different rates. Each, I mean, if you've ever tried to make edibles, you know these cannabinoids have different uh, decarboxylation points, like CBDA is much higher than THCA. Um, so if you go to bake your weed to make brownies or something like that, you'll notice everything you can read online tells you these are different temperatures. You need to do CBDA hotter than you need to do THCA. Um, and I'm not sure where CBGA sits on that scale, but it's something we definitely see here that the drought has less cannabinoid production um, of the known cannabinoids, the two major ones, and then higher buildup of CBG. So it seems like this is only really affecting those cannabinoid synthase enzymes, but not as much the parental transferase and everything upstream of there. So that one kind of stuck out to me as interesting. And then also, if you want decarbed flour right off the bat, maybe drought stress during the first two weeks. That can help build up some of those decarboxylated cannabinoids right off the bat. Yeah, that makes sense. I It's too bad that the study wasn't able to do not only the first part of the flowering, but the last would have been super helpful. But here we are. Somebody out there, please study the last two weeks of flowering and, and stress. I'd say it's always one of the fun ones too. Now that we've kind of helped narrow down the condition to drought, it's how often do you test? Do you care what happens every week of flower? Because these HPLC tests are, are not very cheap to run. Um, and so that's one of the other reasons why it was only the first two weeks as well is because grant money is limited. You only get so much of it and you got to figure out what you can do with so much money and how many tests can you afford. So if you want to test five conditions, it's like, okay, we can get two or three tests. And how much time do you have and how much space do you have and who can I get to run the machine? That's <laughs> how many undergrads can we have help? <laughs> who knows how to do HPLC? Um, so I did see like in this drought section, it says that the increase of CBG accumulation might indicate the blockage of conversion into the two downstream intermediate CBDA and THCA resulting in the accumulation of CBGA that was decarboxylated into CBG under these stress conditions. And then CBDA and THCA synthase may have malfunctioned um, enzymatically and or their genes ex gene expression was downregulated, resulting in less enzyme available. And I felt like that could have been one of the, you know, discussion points in the, in the heat stress portion. Um, but I had a hard time like wrapping my head around this drought stress, but I did write on my notes. It says interesting. <laughs> we did have some really tough reviewers on this paper that were very big on the statistical significance and the statistical analysis we did. And so if it wasn't a statistical significant result, they didn't want to hear about what we thought about happened there. <laughs> it really was not interesting to them and they would not yeah. say it um, just because it was like, basically if it's non-statistically significant, nothing happened. That's what you can say about it. Don't tell me about what you think might've happened because you got this result. I don't care. It was just that nothing. I need to get some new reviewers in the, in, for this journal because my paper that was published in um, Frontiers in Plant Sciences went through five rounds of reviews and took, they had it for two years and we finally just were like, we pulled it. 
because we were like, this is retarded. Like, you, this is ridiculous. You want us to make it this paper into something that it just isn't. It never, like, they wanted us to, like, measure cannabinoids. And, and we're like, but this is a genetic paper. We're not even looking at, like, we don't care what what cannabinoids are in it. But, um, yeah, if, and they, at one point, they pulled in an expert who in genetics, and I don't know who that was, but the and I mean, hell, it could have been you. I don't know. But they were basically like, no, all of this stuff is totally legit. Like, this is exactly what they should have done. And their conclusions are, you know, what they should be. And no, they don't need to measure cannabinoids. It has nothing to do with this. So, but anyway, um, I feel like they they probably don't have a very large pool of um, people who are reviewing papers. But I don't, I don't know. Say the tough reviewers are a blessing and a curse at the same time. Yeah. I mean, they make you a better... Uh, you know, a researcher, a better writer, a better, you know, like, uh, it gives you thicker skin. <laughs> you have to learn how to take uh, constructive criticism really well. <laughs> yeah, a couple punches to the chin, and then you, like, pick yourself up, brush yourself off, and get back to work. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, the last section in this, uh, you know, um, discussion section is that additional work needs to be done. Um, it would be interesting to look at the terpenes, as we've said, um, especially, you know, due to drought. Um, and then in the conclusion, you know, first thing they say is that the floral cannabinoids are um, greater than, um, than in the leaf, which we, you know, several papers have shown that, and that's kind of like a duh. Like, I don't know why we need to put that in there. Everyone pretty much knows that to be true, and there's several, you know, there's lots of evidence to show that that's true. Um, and that cannabinoid production at the onset of flowering, so in young flowers, negatively associated with herbivory, excess heat, and drought, while mechanical wounding doesn't do jack shit. <laughs> um, and drought is the most impactful restraint for hemp growth in terms of cannabinoid production. Um, always, always and forever, further studies are necessary to validate these observed changes and they want to apply, you know, it'd be good to do this with mature flowers and understand the hypothesized underlying gene regulation, causing these increases or decreases, which we have mentioned <clears throat> and springboard study. This provides initial work to then build on, to get funding for, to build out more robust studies that can give us more information and build on the knowledge that we're just really starting to gather about cannabis. I still feel like, super infancy in terms of science research knowledge about can the cannabis plant is like one of the most interesting and complex and important plants on the planet. And we, you know, barely know anything. So, um, I thought this paper was pretty awesome for, uh, everything that was done in it. Uh, yeah, there were limitations, but honestly, like pretty cool. And say, and what one little bone I'd have to pick there is, as we said earlier, every paper out there that says one thing, there's another paper that says another thing. There's not many papers that just repeat the same stuff that are like, I did the same thing over again and I got the same result. Nobody really cares to see that publication, to be honest. But it's like, that's the most important thing. Like, I mean, and the, the leaves versus stems versus flowers, I think we all know that. Anybody who's grown cannabis or smoked cannabis probably knows that. Um, but how many people have measured it and published on it um, and then have reproduced those things in different varieties? Is there some that maybe the leaf is as potent as the flower? 
we don't know because not everybody's tested every variety they have doing this way. Um, and so I push for more confirmational studies or even if you can throw those little bit of sentences in there to say, okay, I, I confirm this. I, there's 20 papers out there that said this and I, I confirmed it as well. So I'm the 21st one there. <laughs> Repetition is one of the, you know, pillars of scientific research. And a funny story, when I first started my PhD, I was like actually kind of pissed that Nolan Kane's lab and Daniela were kind of doing the exact same stuff, but with like different genetic tools. But I changed my mind. I'm like, if I'm doing it with using microsatellites and she's doing the same thing using whole genome sequencing, and we are coming up with the same conclusions, like that is just confirming what we both found. Like we both found the same thing looking at it from different lenses. That means that, you know, it, it just gives more validity to what our findings. And I, I agree with you. There needs to be more repetition. So if people can take this information and do it again with more plants, more strains, more, you know, whatever the case may be, that would be awesome. And I always look for that one person to come out with, uh, oh yeah, my leaves have beautiful glandular trichomes on them and it's just 25% in my leaf. Look at it. <laughs> I'm waiting for that paper to come out with somebody that's like, oh yeah, I had this really rare variety I didn't show anybody, but I want to get it tested and, you know, publish on it because it probably exists out there. Cannabis is really diverse and yeah, it's, it, it's more validity like you're saying. And I, and it's an interesting thing in that comparison, the microsatellites versus whole genome. It's like, well, if these both say the same thing, we're pretty damn sure of this. And guess what? Microsatellites are cheaper to run. So you can just do this and it's, it's better off. Like, um, it's, it's such a cool thing. Yeah. And, uh, for, for the, you know, for smaller, outfits you know cheaper is better you know whole genome is is expensive for everybody but you know the big outfits can kind of afford um some of that stuff which gives them a leg up but if you know if, if you know smaller farmers are able to afford you know some of these genetic um tests and figure out what they have what they're growing where they're going how they're gonna you know um design their breeding program perhaps like and, they, and if they know that there's a cheaper option out there that's just as good as the more expensive option, I mean, I think that's awesome. And that's what we want to bring to the table. It's not just all about us doing science for science. We do science for people, right? This is also why I kind of wish um, there was more international research, because I definitely see the difference in how the plants grow here versus in like Europe or countries like Russia because they do have their seed banks because it was cultivated in the Soviet Union. So there are people who have been growing since like the 60s, the 70s. They have their like signature strains. Like Crimea is pretty popular for the fact that they grow because of their really good climate. Um, and they do have a significantly more leaves on their buds. So for us... They consist more of like those calyxes, right? And everything is covered in trichomes. They have a lot of like actual leaves in their buds on the top. So that's why I really wish there was more sort of capacity for that research. And obviously, like there's a lot of like legal, um, you know, um, limitations there. 
funny enough, a lot of those governments do buy cannabis for the research purposes. Like Russia buys uh, at least like five pounds every year of flour. They buy hash, they buy concentrates to do research and see like what's the potential of benefits and possible harm. Um, but like nobody ever gets to see that research. And it would have been really cool if they actually allowed it to be because, again, during the Soviet Union times, they actually had a whole institution that was focused on cultivating hemp because it was one of our three major um, crops uh, alongside with wheat and sunflower. Uh, there's actually a huge monument, I think, in the Moscow downtown that does have cannabis on it. And right now it's considered to be like a illegal imagery, but yet it's like right there. <laughs> you know, for everyone to see. Um, so I find that's pretty interesting. And like, maybe there is stuff out there that does exist and people do enjoy it because, um, you know, again, like I'm hearing a lot of the stories of people making like infused milk and stuff like that, but they use the wild cannabis they have, which has a lot of um, like leaves and stems in it. And they just like rip the tops of the wild ruderalis and, to get like a bucket and <laughs> simmer it with condensed milk and then they press it all and it comes to be a really strong product and it doesn't really have that many actual flowers in it because again it's mostly leaves so I find that to be pretty interesting and I just wish um, we were at least allowed to do research even if it's not like allowed for consumption in some places because there is a lot of potential for it and I think a lot of the countries could, you know, improve their people's health and improve their economy by allowing like hemp um, to be produced there and distributed. So that's my little rant. I definitely appreciate that. And uh, to, to build on something we said earlier, kind of going through the materials and methods where it's like, yeah, HP pro mix, like these are normal things. If anybody's ever grown cannabis, they've, They've heard of Clonex and HP Promix. Those are about uh, the two things you use most of the time to get off on hydroponic growing or like soilless growing. Um, but do people in Russia use the same thing? Is that a common practice? It's like condensed um, No. They, they have a lot of access to the nutrients that we have here, but they kind of have to sort of improvise with other aspects. For example, instead of like Promix, they usually use a combination of... Um, a mix of soil for lemons and a mix of soil for roses. So they kind of combine the two and then mix other stuff in there. And there is a huge community of growers on Telegram who literally post their grows from like seed to harvest. Like every day they take pictures, they record PPMs and pH and everything. Um, there's actually like, again, a lot of information out there, but it's just not really collected and like, analyzed and then put into a paper with some kind of a conclusion um, but there's definitely you know again so many ways of growing it just kind of shows that cannabis is a plant that really like adapts well to whatever environment you put it in it's just you just kind of make do with whatever you got so i always go back to the saying it is a weed <laughs> if you uh well, pretty much grow anywhere, but if you want to grow it well, there's a, there's a whole another ball game there. Yeah, I always say it. it's easy to grow weed. It's not easy to grow good weed. So, Chris, what are you up to now after this paper? 
So yeah, we are, um, I'm working on another paper currently to publish some of our uh, sex testing results. We created, um, I don't know if you guys have heard of the MADC2 marker set, um, which is male-associated DNA from cannabis. It was a paper, I think, in 2004 that came out um, with just here's some male DNA sequences, and we made molecular markers for them. Um, and so what we did was took that data, validated it, put a qPCR probe in there, set up a whole high throughput testing system, and we tested over 8,500 samples with Steep Hill. Um, and then we've also made kind of a, some really cool like color metric tests, like lamp assays, so loop uh, loop mediated isothermal amplification, and then Twist DX, which is like a recombinase polymer polymerase amplification step. So you just have these little, either a well that you put some reagents in and it changes colors if you have a male, um, or a little cartridge that you can see and you feed DNA into it and it'll change colors if you have a male or you'll get two bands versus one. Um, and so we're working on a publication there. Um, a lot of my work has been in secondary metabolites. So that's just something, um, especially with my day job at Front Range, I work with the ICR in a lot of ways um, to help Sang out and doing some of his research, like the review and the editing of things there. Um, but most of the time is spent with Front Range doing kind of hemp breeding, cannabis breeding with Long's Peak Ag, our California subsidy. Um, we make tons of genetic markers, do marker-assisted breeding programs all the time. Um, and that's that's really where I'm at now uh, is playing in that space. Fun. Well, hopefully that paper gets published soon and we can talk about it and have you back on here. Yeah. That'd be super cool. All right, y'all. We just talked about some short-term environmental stresses on campus. Um, some cool results. Cool people doing these papers and coming on our show. Uh, thanks for watching us and listening to us, depending on your media preference. Um, catch us every week and follow us everywhere. Take it away, Corey. Thanks, everyone. I guess they'll kind of get like a half watch this time, right? Y'all are uh, have just undergone a full, uh, you know, 15-minute early video and now cut out to however long we decided to make this. So apologies again, but y'all are used to it at this point in time. So it's all good. I'll just try and uh, make sure that it's not a habit. So... Much love to you all. Thanks again for uh, participating. I really do uh, appreciate it. Christopher, thank you so much for coming on through. Uh, again, man, this is uh, this is just a fun thing to do when I you know, really started taking cannabis seriously, kind of fusing stoner science with like the real science. And uh, yeah, that's what it's all about. So stoked about that. Thank you to all the resonators who take the time to follow us on all of the things. We're again, we're available on Spotify. Let me know that you're doing it on Spotify by leaving a review. Five stars, do it. If you have some time, you can go over to Apple and do that as well. Really appreciate it. We're seeing some of these bumps. Thank you so much to the people in Canada. That's right, eh? The great country of Canada. We're lopping up the charts real quickly. We've been uh, breaching in the top 100 over there. So thank you, Canada. Much love. And uh, we'll see you next time here on the Canna Book Club, everybody. Thank you so much. Take it easy.